anyway, I want to start this morning with a, a story. Can I start you out with a story? Kind of get us uh, thinking I th uh, in the right direction for uh, what I want to talk to you about uh, this week and next. So uh, many, uh, many years ago, there was a, a young, newly married couple that uh, became part of a local church. They, uh, they had kind of wandered into the church, so to speak, um, just a year or so before that. It, the birth of their first child had kind of stirred some things within them about being responsible and, and raising their children in a, you know, in, a, in a responsible sort of fashion, teaching them uh, good values and those kinds of things. And so uh, they had a neighbor uh, who they had gotten to know, and that neighbor invited them to come to their church uh, for their Easter service. They're going to have a, an Easter program that Sunday, and so they've been inviting them. And this young couple thought, yeah, okay, let's do that. That, that would be a good thing to do. So they, they went that Sunday to that Easter service. And they're, uh, they're in that service as they, uh, as they heard the gospel preached. They felt a certain stirring kind of within their hearts. And uh, at the end of the service, they uh, responded and to that message and professed faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. A couple of weeks later, they were baptized and they became involved in that local church. And uh, that involvement was uh, significant. Immediately, they jumped right into the local church. They, uh, they began to serve together in the nursery. It's always kind of the place where uh, people get asked to serve first. So they, they jumped in and said, sure, we would be happy to do that. And so they served in the nursery. And, and uh, they, uh, they served with a welcoming team. There were uh, an opportunity to, uh, to be part of the cleanup at the, uh, the annual Memorial Day picnic. And so they volunteered to do that too. And basically any opportunity that was presented to them, they jumped right at it and, and got involved and busied themselves in the kind of the life of the church. Seemed like uh, whenever the doors were open, that couple would be there. You could, you could guarantee it. If the doors were open, that young couple would be there and they'd be there front and center. They'd be sitting there and they'd be, they'd be drinking it up and uh, just enjoying the fellowship and the teaching of the word of God. Seemed like they could never get enough. Well, as you... Uh, you might suspect anybody who shows uh, those kinds of signs of life, uh, we need to immediately put a saddle on them and ride them till they drop. And uh, such is the way of a church, right? So uh, it wasn't too long before the, uh, the husband was approached and asked if he would, he would uh, be willing to serve on the, um, the building and grounds committee. And so he, he said, uh, yeah, sure, I, I'd be willing to do that. And and the wife was approached and asked if she would be part of the women's ministries uh, team. And so she said, yeah, sure, I'd, I'd be happy to do that too. And so they got even more deeply involved. And, and now they sort of got below the surface and they began to get into the guts of the church, as it were. And uh, they were exposed there to a, to a new and different side of the life of the church. And it wasn't very pleasant wasn't very pleasant. The property committee meetings were regularly characterized by snide and unkind comments about various groups that used or want to use the facilities. 
It seemed like when it came time for the property committee to meet and to discuss something and make a decision, it, it seemed to this, uh, to this young guy here that, um, that there must have been a meeting before the meeting that he missed because it seemed like a few of the older members of the committee had already kind of agreed together as to what the outcome might be before the property committee even met to talk and discuss the issue. And, and so when he would arrive at those meetings, it was sort of a fait accompli and just, uh, you know, say yes, sign up, and, and on we go. And that was very disheartening to him. And his wife, uh, things weren't too much better in the women's ministries committee either. It came time for women's ministries to select a, a speaker for their annual retreat. And so uh, she got to the meeting there, and, and uh, the meeting began, and the and the. Uh, the the chairwoman of the Women's Ministries Committee announced that her friend was going to be the speaker at the uh, upcoming retreat. Don't worry about it. It's already taken care of. I've already talked to her. She's agreed to do it, and this is what we're going to pay her. And uh, the committee sort of looked at each other, and uh, then one person said something, and then somebody else said something, and then pretty soon an argument started. And uh, that argument went on for quite a long time until uh, several members of the Women's Ministry Committee stormed out of the meeting. And uh, it just was really, really disheartening. So this young couple, they, uh, they approached the pastor. They approached the pastor. They, they called and asked if they could, could come in and, and talk to him, have an, have an appointment to talk to him. And and he uh, made some time for them on his calendar, and so they uh, made the necessary arrangements for childcare, and and they came in, and and uh, they they told him about some of these things, and and the response they got really surprised them, because what he uh, what he said to them was uh, was that they were new to the church, and and uh, that's just sort of the way things are, and uh, then he followed it up with this. He said, I mean, after all, nobody's perfect. And um, they didn't know what to make of all of that. So they were discouraged. They were discouraged by what they saw as a kind of worldly attitudes and behaviors that, that um, were part of, the, of the, apparently the inner fabric of the church. And so they, um, they began to grow distant from the church. That uh, distance first expressed itself in kind of sporadic attendance. They, uh, they weren't there every time the doors opened anymore. They weren't front and center. They weren't always volunteering to, to be part of whatever was going on and serving in any way they could. They, they became very inconsistent in things. And, and when nobody seemed to notice that fact, nobody said anything about it, they, uh, they just sort of confirmed it and the distance just grew greater and the, and the uh, lack of attendance grew more pronounced. The husband was struggling at work. He, uh, he was young and, and trying to advance in this uh, new career, and, and uh, he was facing some very, very difficult ethical issues at work, and, and he really wanted somebody, an older man, somebody, a, a more wise man, somebody to, to help him to process some of these decisions, and uh, there was nobody to be found. And, and so he felt like he kind of had no place to go for guidance, all alone in it. Eventually, they, uh, they stopped coming to church altogether. They just dropped out. And uh, they plunged themselves into the pursuit of the American dream. Bigger house, new cars, 
expensive vacations. They just didn't come to church anymore. Not that church, not any church. Well, after they had stopped coming for a while, uh, there were a few members of that, uh, that church who had known them, and they were, uh, one Sunday morning, they were kind of lamenting the fact that this uh, young couple had uh, fallen away from the church and uh, apparently fallen away from the faith too. And, and so they were kind of commenting that it was obvious that this young couple just wasn't part of God's elect. Just not elect. And uh, after they had kind of talked about that a bit, they, uh, they went back to sipping their coffee and eating their Sunday morning donut and talking about presidential politics. Ever heard a story like that? Ever experienced a story like that? In Genesis chapter 4, right after Cain had murdered his brother, God uh, came to him and he asked him. He said, Cain, where is Abel your brother? And Cain replied, I do not know. Am I my brother's keeper? Beloved, the answer of God to that question is woven throughout the pages of both the Old and the New Testament. And the answer to the question is a resounding and unequivocal yes. Yes, you are your brother's keeper. One of the places where that reality is made perfectly clear is the text that we're going to begin to look at this morning. So I invite you to open up now to Matthew chapter 18. Matthew 18, and we'll be taking it up in verse 6, continuing a series we began here a few weeks ago out of this section of Matthew's gospel about living together in community. Living together in community. We said there were a series of really lessons, teachings of Jesus that occupy these few chapters, these next few chapters of Matthew's gospel. And they are, they are put there by Matthew. They are, they are uh, accumulated by Matthew here in this place uh, in order to, uh, to instruct the church uh, as they uh, get ready to go out and to make disciples of all the nations. Historically, the reality is, is that Jesus and his disciples are on their way to Jerusalem for him to die. And there's a whole bunch of junk that's got to be sorted out first. And there's not much time to do it. So Jesus takes a, a somewhat aggressive approach in some of these things, hitting these issues head on, issues that he had previously addressed, but lessons that apparently had not yet been learned. What does it mean to live together in community? And so this morning's, uh, this morning's lesson is about being our brother's keeper. And it's going to be a startling, it's a, it's a startling kind of, of lesson that the language that is used here is very, very strong. It's confrontive, it's, it's unsettling, it's even perhaps harsh 
because the issue is so very, very important. It's, it's time for these, these 12 disciples to get it. The soft approach hasn't worked. It's time to get it. There are some very, very sobering responsibilities and obligations that they have to each other as members of this new Christian community that is soon to be birthed. And those kind of responsibilities and obligations that they will have are, are part of the great commission of the end of Matthew's gospel in 28 where, where they are told to go into all the world and teach, right, baptize and teach everything that I have taught you. And so these lessons on Christian community are, are very much a part of what they are to teach the following generations and that includes us. We're part of a long stream of Christian history. The people of God have needed to know these lessons and, and needed to practice these lessons. And, and that's true of us. It's true of us. So, the, uh, the goal is uh, verses uh, 6 through 14. And that's certainly not possible in one uh, setting even with minutes in the bank. Although I understand about a third of you are going camping next week, so maybe you ought to stay on afterwards. <laughs> and you can hear next week's then. But uh, there are uh, four statements I want to look at you. That's kind of be our structure as we look at this. There are four statements here in verses 6 through 14 uh, regarding our community responsibilities. And uh, as we live out the Christian life together. Okay? We are together in this, and so we're going to live that out. And there are four statements here that, that Jesus has for us that are really essential for that. So the first statement is, uh, is in verse 6, and it's, uh, it's simply this. Uh, do not damage a disciple. Okay? Do not damage a disciple. Let me back up to the beginning of the chapter and, uh, and begin the reading. Chapter 18 and verse 1. At that time, the disciples came to Jesus and said, Who then is greatest in the kingdom of heaven? And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, Truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. But whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for him to have a heavy millstone hung around his neck and to be drowned in the depths of the sea. Strong words. Strong words. Last time we, uh, we developed uh, the... The first five verses of this section, and just to kind of remind you of that and get you thinking along these lines, prior to this had been an argument going on among the disciples. They had returned from the region of Caesarea Philippi. They were heading to Capernaum. They're in Capernaum. I believe they were resupplying and getting ready for, the, for their road show, as it were, their six-month journey to Jerusalem. This will be the last time they are found in Capernaum in the Gospels. Last time they were in Galilee, they're going to leave from here and never come back, at least not with Jesus, until his resurrection or after his resurrection. 
So, um, so they're there in Capernaum, but as they were proceeding to there, there was an argument. It uh, began as a discussion. It turned into an argument about who, which of them was the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And it became quite contentious. Jesus, aware of their argument, uh, confronts them in, uh, in the house in, um, in Capernaum, I think Peter's house, but it doesn't matter from that sense. But he asked them what you're arguing about. What were you, what were you arguing about? And uh, they are so embarrassed, they fall silent. And uh, Jesus then speaks to them about this issue. And he calls this child as an object lesson and brings the child into the midst of the circle of them. He points to the child and he makes a very, very profound statement about the kingdom of heaven. And he says, unless you become, unless you repent, unless you turn from this attitude and this, uh, this uh, way of thinking that, that stimulates and promotes such argumentative uh, behavior with regard to greatness in the kingdom, unless you turn away from that and become like this child, and uh, we talked about the fact that in the ancient world, the child was a person of no status, not just low status, but no status. Unless you become a no status person, Unless you humiliate yourself, unless you give up all um, inclinations towards worldly success and, and, and uh, reputation and all of these things that the world clamors after, unless you give it up, it's not going to be a question about who's greatest in the kingdom. You're not going to get in it at all. And then he goes on and he says, you want to be great in the kingdom of God, verse 4. To become like this child. The child had no choice in being a non-status individual. You need to become a non-status individual. You are adults. You have status. And for many of us, we're pretty good at kind of, you know, building it up. And he says, you need to make a conscious decision to turn from that and turn to me and become like this child. Why? Because whoever receives one such child, not literally a little child, but, but, a, but a disciple, and this is a definition of a disciple. This is not a special class of humble disciples. This is, a, this is a definition of a disciple. Unless you become a real and true disciple of mine exhibiting this kind of characteristics, you're not going to make it in. But when you do, you will be great in the kingdom of God. We looked last time at the interesting uh, reality, I guess, of that is, which is you don't get in unless you're humble and you won't be great unless you're humble. And so everyone who's humble gets in and everyone who's humble is great. There is no status. There is no pecking order in the kingdom of God. So that was the message, the, the positive, I guess you'd say, part of the message in verse 5. By receiving a disciple, you receive me. For they come in my name. And now in verse 6, he kind of gives the, the opposite side of it, the, the negative side of, of this reality. And he talks here, and, and, he, and he's going to be addressing here, the, really the, the overriding theme of this whole section is that it, that it is exceedingly important not to cause a fellow believer, a disciple, one who has humbled themselves for the sake of Christ and his kingdom to stumble in their faith. To stumble in their faith. He says, whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to stumble. 
He's not talking about children. He, he is, he's done with the child. The child was merely the object lesson. He has moved from the child to the reality of the disciple. So, so here, one of these little ones is a reference to disciples, disciples who believe in me. Whoever causes one of these who believe in me to stumble, it would be better for them to have a heavy millstone hung around their neck and be drowned in the depth of the sea. The contrast here is, is between receiving one of these disciples who come in his name and, and turning them away. This is the negative side. What happens when we refuse a disciple? What happens when we don't respond to another Christian in the way that Christ would have us respond? What happens? Well, Jesus says uh, you, you're causing one of these little ones to stumble. The word stumble is uh, a word that uh, you probably have heard a bunch of times, right? The Greek word is uh, is. Uh, is scandalizo in the, the verb form, to stumble, or scandalon in the noun form, uh, form the stumbling stone. It refers to the, uh, the bait stick in a, in a snare, where the bait would be placed, the animal would trip the stick, and the snare would catch them, and they would be brought up. That is the, that is the scandalon. And so basically when Jesus says here that whoever, and notice it's a broad statement, right? Whoever. Whoever causes one of these disciples who believe in me to, um, to be caught in the trap, it would be better for them to be dead. It would be better for them to be dead. Now, the idea of stumbling someone here that he's talking about is more than just the idea of offending them. Sometimes the word is used and it just speaks of kind of offending somebody. And that's a bad thing. We shouldn't do that. But there's more here than, than just simply offending them. What's, uh, what's being envisioned here is, is doing damage to another disciple. Damage to, to, to their relationship with God in, in such a way that it causes them to trip. And to be in danger of falling out of the race of discipleship. So this is just, this is just morally, more than just sort of, you know, being offensive to them. This is, this is ruining them. Ruining them. Damaging them in such a way that the, there's, a, there's a real and legitimate danger here that they just give up on the race altogether. Altogether. Walk away from it. How do, how do, um, how does this happen? How do, how, do, how do we damage? What's the danger here that, that we're being warned about? Well, I think in the context here, certainly with 6 coming after verse 5 and the, and the adversity of, uh, it begins here with but, uh, we need to be looking for it in the context here. And, and so I think it, it certainly is this. It's refusing to welcome them into the fellowship. It's refusing to welcome them into the fellowship of believers. It's to treat them as an outsider when they are in reality a, a fellow follower of Christ, a, a brother in the faith. I think it's to reject them. It's to ignore them. 
I think it's big enough to include the idea of, of subjecting them to discouragement or even unfair criticism. It's to do damage to them, real, significant, dangerous kind of damage by how we interact with them. In other words, it's the opposite of receiving them in. The opposite of receiving them in. And the result of, of this kind of worldly behavior is that the, these little ones, they are, they are stumbled, they are stunted in their discipleship. And, and it may result in them, in them sort of stumbling or falling into very serious sin. Very serious sin. This is a grave, grave situation going on here. I mean, the gravity of it all is, I think, pointed out that to, to, to refuse to receive them who come in his name is, is to refuse to receive Christ himself. It's to, it's to betray all of the truth of what it means to be redeemed by Christ and, and united by the Spirit of Christ and the, in the body of Christ together. It's a serious danger. Serious dangers demand serious responses. I think verse 6 is kind of a serious response, don't you? It's, um, it's kind of dramatic, kind of decisive. I mean, literally what he says here is, it was, if, you're, if you're engaged in this kind of behavior, it would be better for you. He's talking to disciples here now. It would be better for you to have a, a heavy millstone, literally the, a millstone turned by a donkey. Okay, so not the, not the little hand millstone that the, you know, your wife turns to grind a little bit of corn. We're talking about a gigantic millstone weighing in the hundreds of pounds, perhaps even tons. It would be better for you to have that thing chained around your neck and be dropped off the side of a boat into the Marianas Trench. Okay? Decisive. Dramatic. It would be better for you to be drowned. Better for you to be drowned than engage in this kind of behavior. To engage in these kinds of activities. Kind of let that sink in a little and you go, oh. Wow. Wow. And then Paul says over in Romans 14 that we're to defer to one another, right? We're not to, we're not to create division within the body over meat and non-meat and holy days and non-holy days. And we're not to be judging each other. We're not to be looking down on each other. We're not to be questioning each other's commitment to Christ or condition before Christ and, and all that sort of stuff. And you go, wow, I thought that was hard. And now he's saying, are you, are you serious, Jesus? Yeah, I'm serious. To, to treat other believers like this is to, is to betray the reality of what I came to do. It is to, it is to flip it on its head. It is, to, it is to reject me. And you'd be better off dead than do that. Quick and dramatic death would be preferable to falling into this kind of sin. Do not damage a disciple. 
did not damage a disciple. Second statement for us here in verse 7. But equally sobering, it's this, keep out worldliness. Keep out worldliness. Do not damage a disciple. Keep out worldliness. This is what it means to live together in community. Woe to the world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. Woe. That's a, that's a pronouncement of judgment. Woe. Judgment is upon this world. Cosmos. The, the world system in rebellion against its creator. This system is under judgment. Why? Because it is antagonistic to Messiah's people. It's antagonistic to the, to the followers of Christ. It's the source of much trouble. And in this case, it's a source of stumbling to those who follow Christ. Woe to this world because of its stumbling blocks. For it is inevitable that stumbling blocks come. Isn't that an interesting statement? It is inevitable that that stumbling blocks come. What does he mean by that? Well, he is not, uh, he's not speaking here about divine compulsion. He's not, he's not saying that, that God is the source of these stumbling blocks. You know, it's, it's inevitable there's going to be stumbling blocks in the world because, you know, that's just the way God is. He just brings these things into the world. No. No. There is no sin in God. God does not tempt to sin. But Jesus is reserving or, or is a commenting on a reality that he, that we've all observed. The world is broken. Yes. It's a messed up place. Yes. Everywhere we, we turn, it's against us, seeking our undoing. How's it all work together? Well, it's a mystery. It's a mystery how it all fits together. In the secret counsel of God, wickedness falls under his divine plan in such a way that he is not the agent of wickedness. It, touched, it does not touch him. God is holy, holy, holy. There's no shadow of turning with him. But so somehow... As part of the, of the mysterious plan of God, it, it is inevitable in a, in a world that is broken and, and, and awash in sin that this kind of stumbling is going to come, that these, these kinds of offenses are going to come. In other words, we, we live in a broken world. We live in a broken world. And, and we, as the children of God, we are constantly being assaulted in this broken world. It is inevitable. Inevitable. It's reality. But, see that in the verse? It may be inevitable that we live in a world that is in rebellion against God and is antagonistic towards God and, and his ways. That is hostile to the people of God. But, 
Whoa, judgment comes to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. In other words, that it's, it's part of the, of the mysterious sovereign plan of God. But there is still within that sovereign plan individual responsibility. It doesn't get anyone off the hook. One can't say, well, you know, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm a lawbreaker, but, you know, we live in a broken world, and it's just the way it is. And, and, some, and someone else says, oh, okay, well, then that's fine. Not at all. People are responsible. People are accountable. If they become the ones, if they become the ones who, who actualize the assault upon the people of God through their own words and deeds, I mean, I live in this world. It might be a messed up place. It, it's, a, it's a place that's hostile to us, but woe to the one who becomes the, the agent of that hostility. Woe to the one who, through whose mouth or, or through whose hands that hostility is brought into life in space and time. Beloved, this is just another place in the scriptures where the the tension between divine sovereignty and human responsibility are, are just laid side by side. And you know why Jesus is not embarrassed by it? And we shouldn't be embarrassed by it either. It's inevitable that stumbling blocks come, but woe to that man through whom the stumbling block comes. What are some examples Try to get practical. What are some examples of worldliness that people bring into the church? What are examples of the stumbling blocks that, that, that Christians, that followers of Christ, bring in among the people of God? Now, when we, uh, those in our tradition, when we use the, the term worldliness, uh, I think we have almost a reflexive kind of response to that, that, we, that, we, that our mind goes to thinking about things like clothing. Or, or we, uh, we think about uh, entertainment choices. Or we, or we think about music. Or, or we think about food or drink. And, and that's, you know, we talk about worldliness. Oh, yeah, the church is becoming worldly. The church is worldly. And, and our mind kind of goes to those things. And worldliness can and often is expressed in and through those things, to be sure. But, but those aren't really the big ideas in the New Testament. About worldliness. Actually, um, when the Bible speaks of, of worldliness, it, it really kind of is speaking of, a, of something that's kind of different from all that stuff. Actually, when the Bible speaks about worldliness, it, it, it has in mind uh, the respectable sins. The respectable sins that, that you and I all engage in. And um, we kind of pass over. We, we, um, we excuse them in each other and in ourselves. We, we, uh, we will say, well, you know, I was tired or I, you know, I had a hard day or I, you know, whatever. It's just the way it is. You know, you haven't been in the church long. It's just kind of the way the church is. You know, nobody's perfect. So what, what are these respectable kinds of sins? Well, for those of you who like lists, here we go. Just give me a list. 
Well, I gave you a list. This is a painful list. How about backbiting? Backbiting. That's, a, that's, a, that's an expression of worldliness. That's to uh, backbiting. That's to say mean or, or spiteful things about somebody when they're not present. Oh, I've never engaged in that. Really. It's to say mean and spiteful things about somebody when they're not with you. Obviously, you don't say them to yourself, so it involves saying them to somebody else, right? Backbiting. Ever been the recipient of it? How about gossip? Gossip. That's, uh, that's speaking to uh, somebody else about my sin. You want a working definition of gossip? That's uh, talking to somebody else about my sin rather than talking to me. That's gossip. It's destructive. It's worldly. Slander. What does it mean to slander somebody? Well, it means to make false or misleading statements about somebody that causes others to think negatively about them. It's to make statements that are either completely false or only partially true. It's to, it's to shade the truth. It's to slant the truth. It's to extract sound bites and present them in such a way to make someone look bad, destroy someone's reputation. It's to slander them. Harsh words, anger, critical, condemning kind of speech. Harsh words. Pride and arrogance, right? Pride and arrogance, being unteachable. Can't talk to me, I already know all this stuff. Being boastful about what is a gift, right? Paul says, what do you have that you haven't received? And if you've received it, why do you boast about it as if you hadn't received it? Anything you got, right? Naked you came into the world, naked you will leave. And yet we take such pride, we have such boastfulness in our abilities. As if somehow they came from us. How about lovelessness and unconcern? That's kind of the idea of, well, that's just not my problem. It's not my problem. You know, they made their bed, they'll sleep in it. Right? No love, no, no concern. I don't care. Self-sufficiency. These things kind of, you know, they're interrelated to each other, but how about self-sufficiency? Uh, that's kind of the idea of, um, I mean, it's an extreme form. It would be, you know, me, myself, and I, and the three of us were, there's, you know, no room for anybody else. But, but normally it's more like, uh, you know, I've got my circle of friends and family, and that's all I need, and that's all I care about. I'm self-sufficient. I don't need the body of Christ. I don't need you. Double standards. Oh, do we love double standards, huh? You know what double standards are, right? That's, um, that's like a pole vaulter who sets the bar at uh, two feet for himself and 25 feet for everybody else and then stands back and criticizes them when they can't make it over. 
And we're good at this. We are really, really good at this. Double standards. Bickering. Bickering. That's the arguments about matters of personal preference. Just kind of hammering away at each other about stuff that really doesn't matter. Authoritarianism. Do it my way. I'm the boss. How about jockeying for position? Jockeying for position. You know, that's sort of like, you know, elbowing each other in the lunch line, you know, to get to the front. Playing favorites. How about privilege and perks? Privilege and perks. Oh, one way this might show itself would be in unequal access to, uh, to church property or benefits. Right? Some people seem to get a leg up on everybody else. How come their birthday party is here and mine can't be here? How about office politics? Office politics. Seeking or, or granting favors, winning people to your position before a meeting, establishing voting blocks. Office politics. There's greed. There's self-aggrandizement, making yourself appear greater than you really are, soliciting people's praise. Where does this stuff go? It leads to often church splits. Often leads to church splits. Beloved, it is inevitable. It is inevitable that these things come. It is inevitable. But Jesus says, woe to the man or the woman who is either the perpetrator or enabler of such wickedness. Woe. Woe to you. Paul says in uh, 1 Corinthians, you know, he writes that letter to the church of Corinth, uh, probably the most gifted, spiritually gifted church in the New Testament, maybe one of the wealthiest churches in the New Testament, and also one of the most messed up churches in the New Testament, perhaps the most messed up church in the New Testament. Paul had to write four letters to them. We only have two of them. But he really loved them and was really concerned for them. But in his letter that we know as 1 Corinthians, he, he is writing to this church, and this church is absolutely rife with, with the kind of wickedness that, that it appears on that list. And, and the result of it is there are, there are all kinds of schisms and divisions within that local assembly. And so, so Paul writes to them, and listen to what he says to them in 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verses 16 and 17. He says, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? If any man destroys the temple of God, God will destroy him. For the temple of God is holy and that is what you are. The you here, by the way, is a second plural. Down south, y'all. Y'all, okay? to everybody, he's writing to the church, all you who make up the church here at Corinth, do you not know that you here, the church at Corinth, a local assembly, living together in community, do you not know that you are a temple of God and that the Spirit of God dwells in you? Do you not know that? If any man, it's a generic, 
If any man destroys this local fellowship, this, this temple of God, God will destroy him. Why? Because the temple of God is holy. It is set apart. It is, it is the church purchased with the precious blood of his own son, Acts 20. And that's what you are. You are that temple. A local church, this local church, we are a temple of God in whom the Spirit of God dwells. So to attack the unity of, a, of the local church is, is to attack God himself. It's the work of the Spirit that makes us one. Makes it a pretty serious deal. A pretty serious deal to bring this kind of worldliness into the church. In 1 Corinthians chapter 11, find your way over there if you'd like or not, but 1 Corinthians 11, you know, there's a lot in this chapter, but, but certainly the end of the chapter is dealing with the Lord's table, right? Very familiar passage. You've heard it read many, many, many times. Sometimes it's read and sometimes it's not, but, you know, at the end of the chapter, it, it talks about uh, people dying because they, uh, they approach the communion table wrongly. Verse 27, he says, uh, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in doing so... He is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. And, and so, you know, we provide a time for self-examination. And, and that's good. It's appropriate. But I fear that often our self-examination is, is just sort of this introspective thing about, okay, did I sin this week? Where did I sin that I need to confess? And I'm not minimizing that. But, but the context here, the, 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 the drinking in an unworthy manner, the, the self-examination has to do with, do I and have I valued the body of Christ rightly? That's the sin that he is warning about. That's the self-examination that, that we are to be undertaking. Have I, uh, by my behaviors, by my words, by my inactions, have I betrayed the, the spiritual reality that this meal is, is communicating, which is that we are one together in the Spirit of God. A body. Because he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. Meaning if, if he does not value the body of Christ properly, if he doesn't see it how God sees it, if, if he, and this is generic, so he or she does not value the fellowship, the community of believers, and by, their, by your actions, by your, by your words, by my words, by my actions, have I done something to destroy unity? Paul says, for this reason, because you and Corinth are, are engaged in this kind of worldliness, Many, isn't that, that's amazing. Many among you are weak and sick and a number are, are asleep and it's just a euphemism for dead. You're dead. People have, people have died in Corinth. 
So then, my brethren, verse 33, when we come together to eat, wait for one another. Wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that you will not come together for judgment. It is a very, very, very serious thing to bring worldliness into the church that eventuates in, in causing these little ones to stumble, to veer off course. We need to keep worldliness out of the church. And Jesus now outlines for us in the next couple of verses uh, how to go about that. How to go about that. This is the third statement for us here. The third statement, get serious with your sin. Do not damage a disciple. Keep out worldliness. Get serious with your sin. If your hand or your foot causes you to stumble, cut it off and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life crippled or lame than to have two hands or two feet and be cast into the eternal fire. If your eye causes you to stumble, pluck it out and throw it from you. It is better for you to enter life with one eye than to have two eyes and be cast into the fiery hell. Again, the, the, the imagery here is, is so stark, so hard. What Jesus is saying is, listen, amputation resulting in being maimed is more preferable than, to, than damnation. I think we would agree with that. Right? I'd rather be maimed and be in the kingdom of God than to have everything, all my parts, and be cast into hell. He's calling, about, he's calling here for a radical response to sin. I mean, this is radical language. It's constructed here using the present active indicative. It, it's, it's the idea of, of a continual action. Whoever keeps causing you to stumble. So it's not, it's not speaking about a one-time offense. It's speaking about a life characterized by worldliness in the church. It would be better to, to hack off your hands, to gouge out your eye, than to live a life characterized by worldliness in the church, causing other believers to stumble. Because the end result for you will not be the kingdom of heaven, but the fires of hell. Jesus uses the same imagery over in Matthew 5, 29 and 30. He's there dealing with sexual purity. It's a same expression. Jesus was an itinerant preacher. He would use the same stories and illustrations more than one time with different applications. There, it's, it was speaking about sexual purity and the need to, to, to deal with the thoughts and tensions of the heart. It's not wait till the behave, you, know, you get to the behavior level. Here, he's talking about something completely different. The context here is, is, is causing other people to stumble, other disciples to, to stumble such that they fall out of the race. The language here is, is hypothetical. The language here is hyperbolic. He is not advocating literally cut off your hands. He is not advocating literally gouge out your eyes. Listen, beloved, if it were that easy, if it were that easy to just gouge out an eye or cut off a hand and be assured of eternal life, get out the knife. 
This is hyperbolic language. Right? Cutting off body parts will do nothing. Sin originates where? In the heart. You, I, we need radical heart transplant surgery. Jesus is saying here, basically, listen, if we can't control our members, it'd be better not to have them than to have them and be cast into fire. Again, serious, serious language. I mean, listen to this. It'd be better to be drowned. Whoa, if, the, if you're the cause of, of the stumbling that's inevitable, it's better to cut off your hand and gouge out your eye. I don't know that he could write it in any way more vivid. The seriousness of the issue. What he's saying is that, that, a, that a failure to, to radically deal with our sinful proclivities puts us in danger of eternal damnation. Yeah, but I'm elect. Really? Do we shine a black light on your forehead and an E stands out? I mean, how do we know such things? He's writing to believers and he's giving them serious, serious warnings. Am I saying you can lose your salvation? I'm not saying that. But we shouldn't be thinking about, well, gee, I'm safe, I'm secure. That's not the, you know, next. This is designed to cause us to take serious look at ourselves. And the, and the cost of discipleship. A cost that has been won by Christ for us. Through his spirit, all of the riches of Jesus are ours. Both the desire and the power to, to do battle with sin is ours. It is no longer has dominion over us, Paul says in Romans 6. We are not slaves to sin. If we believe upon the Lord Jesus Christ, we have been relieved. But there's still that ongoing struggle and it has to be fought. And it is fought through the power of the word and prayer. The Spirit uses the word and prayer to, to fight the battle within us. The last uh, 15 years or so, there's been a great recovery of the doctrine of justification within the church. And, and I rejoice in such things. And, and there's been a wealth of good music that has come out from that, just talking about you know, that, that Christ has redeemed us, that it is of him and not of us. And, and we rejoice and we glory in such things, and we should. But in the, and in the emphasis on justification, not enough is being said about sanctification. Not enough is being said about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, to be a disciple of Christ. Listen, we are saved by grace through faith alone. We are sanctified by grace through faith alone, but, but we need to act out that faith in, this, in both justification and sanctification. We need to respond to the word of God. John Owen, the great Puritan preacher of the 17th century, who wrote in sentences so long they would occupy one entire page of a book, Try diagramming those. Difficult sometimes for us mere mortals to read his work. 
but worth the effort. He writes in a, his classic, and uh, he lived in uh, from 1616 to 1683, just so you can kind of, you know, put him in space and time here. He wrote a book called The Mortification of Sin. It's a classic. If you have not read it, I recommend it to you. The Mortification of Sin. Mortification, we don't use that word, mortify, anymore. That's, a, that's like an old school word. Mortify, it means to, uh, basically to put to death. I mean, it means Bigger than that, but that's good enough. It means put to death. He writes this. A couple of quotes out of this book, The Mortification of Sin. Let me just kind of wrap up with this a little bit. He says, do you mortify, or that is, do you put to death? Do you make it your daily work? Be always at it while you live. Cease not a day from this work. Be killing sin, or it will be killing you. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. That is, it. there's no, you can't declare truce with your sin. I cannot declare truce with my sin. I can't wake up tomorrow morning. It's Monday morning. I'm super tired. It's been a crazy busy weekend. I don't feel like fighting with sin today, so today I'm taking the day off. You can't. Because if you are not actively, busily killing sin through the word and prayer, it will be killing you. When you turn your back, it will grab you around the throat and stick a knife in your ribs. And then we think we can take a week off, right? I don't need to read my Bible. Yeah, you do. Be killing sin or it will be killing you. Another quote. He says, let no man think to kill sin with few easy or gentle strokes. He who hath once smitten a serpent, if he follow not on his blow until it be slain, may repent that ever he began the quarrel. <laughs> Boy, isn't that the truth? Don't start something you don't have an intention of finishing. And so he who undertakes to deal with sin and pursues it not constantly to the death. There's no holidays. There's no holidays. We will rest when we get to glory. When we get to glory, we will rest. Until that time, we fight. We fight. There's not a day goes by that we cannot, we must not, we dare not fight. And beloved, it's not my fight alone. It's not your fight alone. There's not 400 individuals here all fighting their own little battles. Yes, I've got my stuff. You got yours. But, but it's together in a community of believers that we fight. I need you. And you need me. And we need to speak the word to each other. We need to, we need to pray for each other. We need to exhort one another. We need to encourage one another. We need to admonish one another. All the more as we see the day drawing near. As we continue with this passage, we're going to find out that, that, that involvement in each other's lives is not an option. It is not like, well, there's some churches that, you know, where they get really involved in others' lives and there's other churches where they don't. No, there's only one kind of real church. It's where 
believers and followers of Christ are involved in each other's lives and care about each other. This uh, section here, these verses 8 and 9, they, the you here is a, is a second person singular you. This is not a y'all. This is a you personal. And I point that out to you because um, what it's saying here is, is essentially that, that uh, I need to deal hand to hand with my proclivity to sin and you need to deal hand to hand with yours. So the application to this, this passage about cutting and gouging and and all of that is going to be a little bit different for each of us. I didn't give you an exhausted list of worldliness. <laughs> but I gave you a representative list. Enough for any and all of us to find ourselves there in multiple entries. Right? We could put our name under more than one of those. So we got a, more than enough stuff to work on. Well, we need to do it. We need to do it. It needs to be gospel-motivated, gospel-empowered. Rooted in the word of God, bathed in prayer. And may God cause us to, to rightly understand and value a local church that he purchased with the blood of his own beloved son. Let's pray. Our Father, the language that your son Jesus uses here is so strong. Shockingly strong. Uncomfortably strong. May your spirit wake us from our complacency. May your spirit use his word and apply it to each of our hearts exactly where it belongs. And Father, we confess that, that we are guilty, all of us, at some level or another, on some occasion or another, of not valuing the body of Christ, of being an occasion for the stumbling of another believer. of having a, an attitude of indifference to the struggles of a brother or sister in Christ. Oh, Lord, we are a wretched people. Oh, Lord, we need your mercy and grace. We thank you that the victory has been won in Jesus. We thank you that this is not a performance-based relationship, that you do not measure us on some sort of a scale but that Christ has done all that we could never do. We're called to believe in response to that belief to do. May you work and move among us, Father. Accomplish your great will. I pray, Lord, for, the, for that one who is here this morning who, who is not part of the body, Perhaps even a member here, gone through the official membership process and yet still has yet to commit to Christ fully. Do a mighty work in 
his or her heart even now. Open their eyes to see the beauty of Jesus. And may they flee to the cross of Christ. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.